Hi, Mike Truce here from Indigo Group and uh, this episode of the Property Puzzle Podcast, you'll be listening to myself and my co-host, Sarah Checky of Shape Australia, interview Kate Merrick. At the time of the interview, she was working with Studio THI. She's subsequently moved over to be a director with Urbis. Congratulations for the move, Kate. I uh, hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you. Hello and welcome to The Property Puzzle, the podcast helping you piece together the industry and your property career. My name is Sarah Checky and I'm from Shape Australia. I'll be joined this season by my co-host, Michael Truce from Indigo Group. And together we are from the Property Council of Australia's Future Directions Committee who is bringing you today's podcast. Thanks, Sarah. This season of The Property Puzzle podcast is called The Trends Piece. We'll be asking our guests some of the major trends they're seeing in the industry and discussing how they think those trends will be affecting both young professionals and the industry more broadly. So would you like to um, introduce our guest today? Thanks, Mike. Today we are very lucky to have Kate Merrick from Studio THI. She's their Chief Executive. Welcome to The Puzzle, Kate. Great to be here. Uh, Could you please introduce yourself and what you do to the listeners, please? Sure. My name's Kate. I have been a placemaker now for more than 25 years and I head up a small non-profit organisation that specialises in placemaking more from a strategic perspective. Thank you. So... As hopefully you have gathered, today's theme is on placemaking. Can you please explain what exactly is placemaking? Sure. From my perspective, placemaking is the most fundamental kind of human-centred design. It's all about making sure that we connect people in a more meaningful way with the places where they live or they work, where they study or where they go to spend their leisure time. Wonderful. Kate, that's quite an interesting observation that placemaking is all about people-centred design. One of the topics that's come up in a few of our earlier interviews is Um, Just as far as trends go, how we're moving these days more towards people-centred design and needs-centred design rather than the more traditional sort of supply-side design approach of sort of the 1950s cigarette marketing where you had a product and you sent it out in the market. For the property industry, how is that sort of people-centred design and an understanding of the needs of a community and people really coming through the placemaking process and impacting developments now? How is it sort of, are you seeing it in practice being implemented in the property industry? Ultimately, if we don't create places for people, if we don't truly understand what they need, what will resonate with them, what will meet their ambitions, then they will choose to go somewhere else. So we will create potentially beautiful buildings that nobody enjoys using that don't play a valuable role in the future of our cities and communities as they grow. And Because we are growing so fast now, there's a temptation to believe that we just do more of the same. But as we evolve Mm. as a community, our needs evolve, our sophistication, our desire for authenticity and identity are all changing too. And so keeping really firmly in touch with our end users is fundamental. It's intrinsic to creating a great place. Mm. That notion of creating identity and the role of placemaking, creating identity for the users of the spaces, I think a really important part of the trend right now. We're seeing, foreshadowing another interview that's coming up in Build to Rent, we're seeing a lot more product types in the industry coming out where owners and the transaction happening as far as the users of that space are more renting and more temporary, well, in the terms of title residence, but still staying there with a much greater sense of permanency than has historically been the case for tenants. And at the same time, those buildings are having to serve more than just the tenants, they're having to serve the wider community around them. Um, How do you think that sort of identity creation process and the design process for those sort of buildings is sort of happening? Like, What's actually being done to create that? Um, Because I know at the same time you're getting a lot of ABCD design 
tower is still getting built. So what's the differentiation um, between the two different approaches? That's a massive question. It's probably a whole podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, really. But I, I think it's how we engage and involve people in the process of design and yep. in the, the place creation from the outset, not how we retrofit and overlay their needs once we've actually finished. So it's very challenging when you think about involving people in a design process when we're trying to do things so quickly or when we're trying to do things in a mm. complex planning environment. But ultimately, if we haven't actually involved our end user, if we haven't really spoken to them, if we haven't really embedded their needs and their expectations in our product development cycle, then we are not going to get places that people feel attached to or that actually meet their needs. So in the long run, we might have cut the corner and we might have brought our product to market faster, but the product we brought to market actually doesn't meet need. Mm. And as there's more product, people simply won't use the places they don't like. Mm. So it's important to have a strategic element to placemaking. I really think it's incredibly important and, and part of the role of Studio THI has been to work at the front end of projects, projects of all scales. So not just the ones which are seismic in the sense of transforming a city, but those that are fundamental to the future of a local neighbourhood or a, a suburb or a community in a, a context outside of a city. And a lot of that is about the word ought. What ought this place to be? What is the mm. value, not not a dollar value, but what's the societal value that this place can contribute and how do we find that out? And if we don't set our projects up to succeed, then we have to work twice as hard at the end to come back and put a tactical overlay to address its fundamental weaknesses. So for us, actually working with our clients, our cities and our communities right at the outset to define what ought or how success could be for all participants is, is really an important part of that process. But it takes a very enlightened client to be prepared to go on that journey because the fear is that the end user will come back and ask for something that's totally undeliverable. Now, in our experience, that's actually not often the case, but it's the thing that concerns people about going out and asking the question. You shouldn't ask a question if you don't know what answer you're going to get. Yeah. <laughs> and how do you tap into the core of a community like that? I think part of that is about having a really robust and disciplined process for going and exploring that community. And then the other part is actually having the uh, empathy to be able to get people to tell you their stories. So great preparation work of really understanding, watching, observing, being in that community and seeing how it functions, and then being prepared to dive in and actually run activities and events, invite people to come into your space and share their views and their opinions and understand that you might not necessarily agree, but it doesn't make their opinion any less legitimate. And in your vast experience, have you seen a great difference in what different types of communities want out of a place? I, intrinsically, some things are always the same. So the ability for a place to feel like you belong, that you're included, that you're welcome there, that you can participate is pretty fundamental and and then at the facile end great coffee pops up an awful lot as well <laughs> but in the middle there are huge nuances between how people live their lives in different cities in different neighborhoods around the world and therefore the places and spaces within those neighborhoods have to be quite responsive and I kind of like this idea because I think this goes uh, it's the counter trend to having these large global international architects come along and create set pieces that moving the other way is saying we, we want to draw on the identity and the rhythm of life in our very localised context to produce something that's extremely bespoke. So what do you think comes first, the culture or the place? Oh, I think that's a really interesting <laughs> question and I do actually think the two work together in a beautifully symbiotic way because mm. when we set up places that are beautiful that are inclusive that are equitable we actually get a different vibe in that community but similarly I've also seen it work the other way around where communities that have incredible mojo and energy are able to create very transformational 
um, environments for themselves. So I think you can work it from either end. Do you have any examples of that? Oh, lots of different examples so at, at different scales. And it's quite it's often quite difficult to nail that down. So if I think at a really big scale, I think about King's Cross. So mm-hmm. King's Cross Rail Yard is probably one of the most written about projects in the world. But if you really strip it back and you think about the time 2000 to 2008, before there was anything on the ground to look at, there was an enormous amount of work that was done by the authority body there to work and connect with the local people in the surrounding area, to think not just about how they wanted the buildings to look and what kind of uses were going to be there, but how those people would join in. And as a result, some of the public realm elements of King's Cross are actually quite locally activated. And it's the people who live in and around the project who bring out the uh, the deck chairs, the climbing frame, the children's equipment, the dog parks, and they make that energy happen for themselves. And I really love that. So there's one project where there is a hugely strong top-down vision and curation and incredibly powerful bottom-up energy that comes at the same time. Great example. What other examples globally is Encade effective placemaking in sort of large-scale projects? Oh, in large-scale projects, you, there are a number... Transportation is my passion in yes. life, so mm-hmm. anyone who's heard me speak knows that I... I have a huge affinity to transport-led projects. And there's a number of station-oriented projects that are really quite beautiful from a placemaking perspective. So I think of Denver Union Station and the ability to create a living room environment in downtown Denver, or even Denver Library, where they actually created the library environment to be so inclusive that the homeless people in the city felt not only welcome, but actually actively invited to be part of that space. So there's a kind of little example there. Then I think about St Pancras, the uh, station that's adjacent to King's Cross Rail Yards, such an awesome place environment that 34% of the people in that station at any point in time aren't catching any form of public transport. They're they're just there because they love it. And then at the other end, you know, much closer, I actually think of Longland Street here in Brisbane, which is the back end of Gasworks, and uh, that it was pretty much a street that no one had any reason to walk down five or six years ago. Now I walk my dog there out of choice every day. Mm. And I think about Gasworks and, and the pleasure of seeing a piece of redundant land 2003, 2004, 15 years later, full of children riding scooters, people watching movies, Shakespeare in the park, champagne. It's a real local community. And I think that's two highly localised examples of placemaking just as great as those at an epic scale. There's some great examples, and you said, of in Red Gas Works, the projects there that of placemaking and really good sort of needs and people-centred design um, approaches. It's quite exciting, I've found. Like, it's come up a few times in our recent discussions. I'm pretty lucky. I actually only just have done the road, so yeah, I'm yeah. every day. You get to, it's an easy choice to make. It is very easy. So we've uh, covered some uh, examples of where people and government bodies have nailed um, placemaking. Do you have any examples where they just haven't hit the mark? Do you know, I probably would never work again if I actually named and shamed any of my <laughs> projects. You can but... make up hypotheticals. <laughs> we can guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think there are a couple of quite interesting examples that don't necessarily speak to a developer or a council failing per se, but where despite the best intent, somehow it's just not working yet. Mm. And a localised example of that for me, I'm afraid, is King George Square. I still I feel that that has somehow lost its way, that we've put a lot of effort into something that's really still not doing everything it ought to do mm. as a major ceremonial square in our city, that it's, uh, despite some great events, it's still a very uh, transitional space, it's a very fluid space, it's a very hard environment mm. there. Uh, and I think that's a, a real shame because this is a hugely significant uh, place and point of arrival for visitors coming to the city and yet somehow you get there and you're like, oh, okay. As someone new to Brisbane, you've just put into words the feeling that I have about that particular place and I don't know it 
very well at all, and that might be why. And and I think another example, um, and again, uh, state government architect will probably take me outside and shoot me later. <laughs> I personally love Roma Street Parklands, and I think it's mm. a great example of fabulous placemaking. But at the moment, the difficulty of physically connecting into what is a great place mm. stops it from playing its ultimate role in the city. And I think this comes to another very important point in the placemaking story that great places have to be ultimately accessible. Mm. So it is no point in having a great place that you cannot get to or get away from or move around easily. And so here we have a fabulous example of a place that at the moment just is not providing the value dividend that it could do if it were better connected into the rhythm of life in the city. I was about to ask a question around what is the importance of the interplay between transport and great places, given that that's your forte. Goodness me, there's a whole PhD in that. (laughs) And I hardly know where to start to answer the question because I find it a really exciting one. I think, first of all, we need to go back to the idea of what all transport places were in cities. They were the point of arrival. Mm. They carried with them incredible charisma and excitement because they encouraged us to understand the city from the first moment that we got off the train. Um, even a bus stop can be a place of quite of, of excitement, either because you're arriving home at the end of a day, it's quite a uh, feeling of relief, or because you've arrived in a city and you're orienting yourself. So there's this energy and romance and excitement and discovery that we can leverage. And that was working really well in the 1800s and then suddenly we lost our way a little bit and now we're rediscovering that mojo again as we adapt some of these really iconic spaces in our cities to be something new. So I think Cross River Rail is, uh, for me, we're still waiting to see what the place story around these new station environments is going to be because ultimately not many people catch the train just to catch the train. They catch the train for the places they're able to reach. But I think there's another element to that as well, which is a city that's full of great places that you can't move between isn't actually deriving value Mm. out of those great places. So how we are able to walk, cycle, catch a train or a bus between our palette of great places throughout the city is becoming increasingly important. And I think for Brisbane, which is a city with a growing amount of great places that are unfortunately quite disconnected still, Mm. that sense of how do we coalesce them so that you can have a great day out or a great morning or just actually find another great place that you never knew existed is going to become an increasingly important question. So it's imperative. Totally. Kate, one of the um, objectives of the podcast and and a lot of our listeners are going to be new and young professionals as well as some intermediate professionals with an interest in sort of what best practice is and how does it get done and understanding the process of some of these trends in sort of the granularity of their day-to-day work. In your, how would you describe the role of placemaking sort of in, in the process of ideating that project, getting through to the, the design process and getting into sort of implementation and navigating it through to delivery? What's the process and practice that placemaking sort of has that our listeners may sort of come across as their career develops? From my perspective, I actually think that placemaking is the glue that binds everything and everybody together. So when we focus on the quality of the place and the experience that we're delivering, what it ought to deliver and and what it actually does deliver, we unify all of the professionals, different disciplines, the community, the government, the private sector in one conversation. And when we take it throughout the life cycle of a project from the very first moment it sits in someone's imagination, there's nothing more powerful. There is no right that is more onerous um, in its execution than creating a great place because we live with that for the rest of our lives. Every time we walk past it, we know that the genesis of that place was in our imagination in the hearts of the people who use it and, you know, we brought that to life. So I see it as a very galvanising, very uh, motivating force. 
and not something that you add on afterwards as a marketing ploy or a public relations stunt mm. or a communications device. It's, it's the fundamental platform that success is built on. Mm. It's the vision. Mm. It's the execution of the vision. Oh. So when I think of vision, I suppose I'm always a little bit challenged by imagining that as a strap line, as a giveaway, as opposed to imagining vision as how you bring to life the soul or the essence of that experience, how you make sure everyone is sharing the same imagination of what success will look like. Mm-hmm. So obviously governments play a really critical role in creating spaces and places that we all use. Um, in your opinion, how do you think the Australian federal and state governments are, are tackling placemaking and are they where they should be? I think we need to make more room for placemaking in our statutory frameworks. So I think we actually don't give room for the conversation. A lot of the community-based conversation happens at very tight pinch points where potentially tempers and emotions are running very high. And it's not a broader conversation around the qualities of a place that we believe are advancing our community or the life in that community or supporting our competitiveness as a nation. So I do actually think we need to take more of a leadership position in government and we need to be much clearer in the objectives that we're setting for the performance of a place. And I think it is actually incumbent on us at a local, state and national level to make this conversation more meaningful ahead of any one project being brought to the market Mm. or the assessment of any specific application. So I think the time is right now. There's a huge momentum around the placemaking movement and that we could as a nation um, and as a state here in Queensland, we could really take a leadership role about what it means to have a place-centred approach to the curation of our cities and communities. Well said. What do you think is... uh driving this interest and renewed movement in placemaking because it's an age-old concept. Uh, It is, and I think there's a number of things that are coming together in that sort of perfect positive storm. Uh, One is this issue around trust. So great places mediate trust. They mediate trust between individuals in a community. They mediate trust between the community and government, between the community and the developer, because everybody can see that an outcome that is positive for all stakeholders has been delivered. And they also give us the places that we come to meet people and get to know people who maybe are outside of our normal acquaintanceship mm. circle. So this need for more trust in a more uncertain world, I think, is has been a very powerful uh, motivating force. But I think people are also, they travel more, they see more on the television or on social. I'm showing my age, I don't talk <laughs> the TV anymore. It's uh, YouTube. streaming and YouTube. whatever, however yeah. else they're accessing it. So they're more aware of what's available in other places and they start to use their imagination and, and to feel that they have a role to play in the creation of these places. So the democratisation of uh, creativity and design processes, I think, is is another movement that's actually coming very powerfully at this point in time. And I think the third thing is that we've kind of gone over the hump of everybody wants to have buildings by a set of architects, everybody wants to have this kind of garden or that kind of walkway or whatever it is that's the latest piece of of global plonk and Mm. instead we want to have cities that feel more like our own place that express our own identity culture and way of life and nobody is more powerfully able to motivate that than us Mm. so those three things together I think are really starting to build some momentum from a grassroots that's hard to ignore it's interesting the comment that observation that people are a little bit over perhaps uh, I'd call it the big set piece developments. And I'm not going to name anything, but there's certainly one that's jumped to mind a couple of times. Me um, neither. And locally. I was really careful not to yeah, name yeah, yeah. anything. <laughs> no, no, so I've said I've set a trap there here. But uh, it's oh, certainly, no. um, I think all of our listeners can probably pretty easily draw to mind a, a number of examples of how 
exceptional amounts of money and time have been spent on these real set-piece developments that run up against extraordinary community resistance mm-hmm. because they don't understand it, they don't feel perhaps that it's a part of their identity, to, to sort of use that phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really, to me, an important consideration in understanding how this trend fits into the property industry, one, to understand that what placemaking is all about, as you said, starting at the grassroots and getting to understand what the community needs are and integrating them from the outset rather than trying to sort of force something down their throat for the sake of sort of having a great name attached to a development or a And in fact, design. perhaps an example of that that's nice and agnostic because it's offshore <laughs> is I recently came back from New York and there are many things in New York I really, really love and admire greatly. And I've been following the story of Hudson Yards since before there was a Hudson Yards. Mm. And so I was quite excited that I was going to have a chance to see the vessel, um, which I hadn't seen finished. I'd only seen it in pieces, actually, all over the, the platform that they've created over Hudson Yards Row Yards. I was so disappointed. Oh. I just... It's an inordinate amount of money to have spent on something that has really limited local appeal. Um, and it was hard to imagine that you couldn't have spent $250 million doing something so much more meaningful... Mm for that part of New York or for citizens across New York and its visitors mm. and more authentic mm. than that. Mm. And it seems a tragedy when, uh, not to speak to that project specifically, but when such a permanent thing is a part of land that large and prominent in a community sort of misses the mark mm. in that way when different approaches could probably have been taken to save a lot of money as well <laughs> potentially mm. get great outcomes. Um, you mentioned before Roma Street Parklands and there's obviously the great... Um, opportunity coming up with Cross River Rail and the potential for the future of um, Brisbane Live as well, which I, I personally find really like quite exciting to think about well, what's going to happen there. Kate, what would you think, like if you could dream up the solution for the parklands and particularly with the, you know, a blank checkbook with the potential for those <laughs> two che- like uh, projects, what are some of the ideas you think would be really meaningful for activating the parklands with those two projects? So for me, it's all about bringing the parklands closer to the city. And, you know, with the reconfiguration of the Roma Street precinct, that really has a chance to be an amazing front door for us um, and a truly urban place and an example not only of our story, the story of our landscape and our peoples, but also the story of our future, of our progress, And what I would love to see, I suppose, more than anything is greater accessibility across the railway lines. So Mm. I'd like to see the opportunity for the park to continue to cascade down across the railway and into the city and and bring continuity to that green ribbon that extends from the top of the parklands all the way down through the Albert Street Green Spine. And if we don't do it now, if we don't really make sure that that foundation is in place now, then we've really lost the opportunity for a significant period of, of time ahead. And I'd like to see more intensity of um, development and place around the station. So, obviously, I'd like to maintain the heritage aspect of the beautiful little station building, but I would like to see us build something there that dignifies the value of that location. So Mm. I'd like to see a public realm that's vibrant and very urban, progressive, inclusive, somewhere that we can really have another active evening node. I'd like to see something that speaks to young people in the city, mm. uh, perhaps more meaningfully than some of the other infrastructure infrastructure that we've had until Howard Smith Wolves came online. And I'd definitely like to see something that strengthens that connection. Otherwise, mm. we are going to further disconnect a beautiful boutique piece of placemaking and natural landscape from a very large audience who would love to use it. Mm. Can you retrofit 
placemaking. So you've sort of said before that the strategic element is great, but if you miss the boat, are there any examples where people have gone back in and, and created what a place ought to be? There's if- always ways that... and. There are so many talented tactical placemakers in Australia. We actually have an incredible ecosystem of placemakers who are able to bring extraordinary places to life permanently or temporarily. (laughs) So there are always things that you can do that increase activation and safety and uniqueness and bring life to a space that otherwise perhaps isn't enlivened. I, I guess for me the larger challenge is when you have not put thought and effort into positioning a project from the outset so that it is the most it can possibly be for everybody which is not the same thing as saying it's everything to all people but Mm. that we have been very careful and specific and intentional about its role in the city it's really difficult to have that idea 10 years later and every time that we fail to leverage one of those major opportunities in our city another city in the world takes a major advance over us so I think For me, that's the point where we need to make sure that we're putting a lot of emphasis, that we are not just commissioning projects without adequate thought, that we really are very careful and considered when these opportunities come our way. The cost of change is very high. Mm. We've talked a lot about the very large-scale and grand projects. A sort of interest to a lot of our listeners may be in the bread-and-butter projects, in the infill projects, the extra urban jobs where an exceptional amount of time has been spent without a lot of sort of um, accolades and acknowledgement, where can placemaking fit in for the property industry in sort of those extra urban spaces, those small sort of 100-lot subdivision or 50-lot subdivision? How can people creating those places get better outcomes through placemaking? So that is such an important question because actually, although we spend a lot of time talking about our city centres and these major projects, most people live in the suburbs, most people spend their daily life in the suburbs. And in my opinion, every suburb, every school, every bus stop can be a great place with a little bit more thought. And so I think we have to expect more from ourselves. We have to be prepared to be slightly more experimental than we are. Be prepared that sometimes we'll try things and they will fail. Mm. It just means we try something else next time. And I think we need to be a whole lot more cooperative and collaborative in how we pull people into these opportunities and uh, create ideas that we've all shared and built on and brought our own expertise to. And I certainly look at a number of the projects that have happened in our uh, large shopping centres in a more suburban context and think we've made huge strides in creating places within hermetically sealed malls Mm. that when I first arrived here 20 years ago, you know, we would have been really challenged to find a mall that we thought could be a great place. Mm. Uh, I think that's a huge opportunity. And even when I look at things like community gardens, small, very small squares and gardens, can be an incredibly important local place resource. So I do feel that you're right. We put a lot of... uh, We shine the spotlight a lot on the major projects in our CBDs, but more creativity actually does happen in our suburban areas already. We just don't celebrate it so much. And I would really like to see us push very heavily onto developers, small-lock developers, medium-lock developers, the opportunity to just think more about... Mm the tiny things they can do, the sum of a whole load of really small changes that would make a really big difference. And Mm. I guess that organisations, many of the organisations in the placemaking world are small, non-profit, boutique organisations like mine. And we're always there to try to work with community groups and smaller developers who may not have the in-house resources or smaller local authorities to think more creatively. So, you know, the answer is always you should pick up the telephone and call for help because quite often help is much closer to hand than you think. It's a really great observation, I guess, to sort of put put out there because a lot of the time those sort of extra urban projects aren't supported with the sort of 
scale of planning vision mm. or planning system um, and funding and simply put feasibility that mm. provides for really not quite complex but creative placemaking exercises. So being able to take a bit more of a out-of-the-box view and say pick up the phone, get some help and think how can we reach out to community groups and then how can we communicate that perhaps in the planning system and the planning process where it's not this preordained element of the design process for those sort of smaller, less exotic projects, but it's certainly one that can be implemented if there's a little bit of creativity that goes into the process. Yeah. And that early consultation, it seems like, is something that is potentially maybe missing in some of those um, outlying suburbs. And in fact, um, obviously being British, we are not programmed to love the French, but I recently spent one <laughs> day in France and uh, I came back totally converted because went to none of the hero places really, but to a lot of quite small towns and saw some of the most beautiful boutique examples of fine grain, small scale, low cost, light touch placemaking I've ever seen mm. and kind of walked away going, wow, if they can create that in what's actually just a side street by a hospital or if they can create that around the railings of a park or if they can create that on a scrappy piece of campsite, yes. how, how are they actually doing this? Where is this initiative and inertia coming from? And unfortunately my French was not really good enough to find the answer but I was very impressed by some of what was effectively imagination yes mm. and the desire to bring out their own localized identity so much more strongly I, I think that was really very eye-opening for me on this trip and I think that certain notion of using that creativity and placemaking to create identity in suburbs is going to be incredibly important for our industry in the, in the in mm. very near and long term in Australia because we've got such a sort of expansionary footprint of, of the urban footprint and notwithstanding sort of in Queensland state government exercises to sort of limit that, um, but certainly around the, the country you're getting a lot of new suburbs and it seems to me that when you get all these greenfield developments we need to put extra effort into making sure placemaking mm. is done effectively. And some things are really, really small and they can seem so insignificant and there is a real lack of understanding of the massive impact they can have. So planting, mm. beautiful planting is really not a high-cost item mm. but often by the time that we get to the point of actually the planting the budget is pretty low and we never think let's go out and let's work with the community gardening group and see whether we can actually create something that community itself curates every bus stop could have a work of art but instead we use the space and we lease it in advertising. for advertising revenue you know there are so many different tiny incidental ways that government agencies community organizations could actually contribute to a better place agenda but we don't ask it of them. Those are incredible ideas. They're so simple too. They like, are terribly simple. They really are terribly simple. Yeah. What are some of the innovations that you are seeing in placemaking? Um, I think a lot of the innovation is around adaption and reuse of things and pop-up and ephemerality. So not expecting that a placemaking intervention actually lasts forever. Mm. That this might be a placemaking intervention that lasts for six months or a year. It might only last for a week. But if it was valued and it lives on in people's memory, it becomes part of the footprint of that place and so there is a beauty to something that even you know is maybe only there for a day and there are also little tiny placemaking gestures I don't look at Facebook a lot but there was an article on Facebook recently about a gentleman in the UK in some town in the Midlands and he went out one morning and he cleaned the war memorial mm. and it took him nearly all day he weeded it and he scrubbed the stones so that you could see the names properly and then he packed up and went away and no one even knew who he was but he had that 
care for his own environment and he wanted the story of those people not to be lost. And so that was a gesture that was kind of citizen placemaking in the extreme. And so you kind of get these interesting ideas around guerrilla placemaking. You know, mm. what's so wrong if somebody does come along and, horror, so sorry, but creates urban art on a wall that's otherwise yeah. ugly? Yeah. And what is actually so wrong if somebody comes along and wants to put additional planting or create a small nursery somewhere? I, I think those guerrilla activities ought to be encouraged and... I just I feel that we could have a placemaking fund that instead of expecting developers in the city to contribute to pieces of Plonkart that nobody cares about, what about if there was a placemaking levy that went into a centralised fund that we could distribute to places where maybe that kind of tactical overlay would make a massive difference? Mm. That was a quiz question this week. What what is gardening where you're not supposed to call guerrilla gardening? Guerrilla gardening, yeah. I did not know Sorry. that that was a thing, but um yeah, maybe we should be harnessing that power. I think we should actually be creating a movement for guerrilla placemakers. Mm. And these aren't these that exotic ideas. Like, I mean, yeah. what we're talking about are, like, really, it's what we're watching on television on the weekend, like, and what we all enjoy. But sometimes it can be very hard to connect those sort of natural experiences and things you do with your work and something you're creating, potentially. Yeah. One of the things that jumps to mind with that sort of temporary and guerrilla placemaking is, you know, where there's water quality treatment basins in every new subdivision and the turf gets ripped up after a year. There's a lot of opportunity there to use that space for that first year, particularly when the community's forming, you know, small ideas about how you can change the use of a space or adapt to its use yeah. um, are really potentially exciting. And know. also things like we are actually quite obedient, really, for mm. a nation that was more, more recent times founded by convicts, but we are really quite <laughs> compliant. And I was... Intrigued when I was in New York a few weeks back, there was a florist um, from somewhere in Brooklyn and they spend $1,000 every month putting some floral artwork in some small pocket park somewhere and then they run a competition for another $1,000 voucher for the best Instagram photo posted of it. So it is a blinding piece of blatant marketing. (laughs) But it's also an absolutely beautiful small installation that lives for a little period of time and people get great pleasure out of walking past it. And we happened to be walking past when they were installing a beautiful, huge love heart of flowers and said to the lady, you know, who gave you permission to do this? She said, why do I need permission? And I thought this is such a fantastic... um, Whereas we'd be like, oh, no, you've got to fill in three forms in triplicate and council won't like it and it's got to be off the pavement, it's got to do this. Why? Yeah, mm. exactly. Well, I think then a great idea that's come out of this, maybe for the PCA is to organise a study tour to rural France. And <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Brooklyn, definitely. Uh, brewery, Brooklyn and brewery and rural France. Uh, I could marketing. do that for you. Yeah, I think this is a great idea. <laughs> um, is, does placemaking only have a home in public spaces or is it just as important in private spaces? I think placemaking has a home everywhere. I mean, essentially, we placemake in our own homes. Mm. Um, And I particularly think about the indoor spaces. So obviously, there's a range of spaces and a range of appropriate placemaking responses. But when you think about universities and schools, they're semi-private places. um, And yet, they're starting to understand the importance of creating that resonance for their students, that they want to come here. It's part of their defensive strategy against the encroachment of digital learning devices that we actually make our universities and our schools places that we love to be. Mm. So I think increasingly placemaking is finding it's finding its own level across a range of typologies and, and a range of asset classes. And just to wrap up, thanks, Kate. Um, how do young professionals stay ahead of the placemaking curve and keep up with the changes? They have got to travel. Um, I say this all the time when the kids come to me in my uh, business and they say, I'm so sorry, but I need to leave you because I want to go to London. I'm like, that is great. <laughs> Off you go. I wish you were my boss. <laughs> <laughs> because 
if you don't travel and if you don't see the world, yes, you can look on the internet and you can browse for hours, but talking to people and actually seeing things firsthand and experiencing those spaces fires your imagination and shows you the art of what's possible in a way that nothing else can. So I think that more businesses ought to encourage their graduates to go on study tours, incentivize them to go and see other things, make sure that their eyes are really opened, and then teach them how to come home and interpret what they've seen into a milieu that's more appropriate to their home location. So get out, get a passport, go somewhere else. <laughs> it was really um, a part of UK sort of urban design sort of history, wasn't it? The Grand Tour oh, over absolutely. the continental Europe that's yes. created some really indelible outcomes that young engineers and designers have brought back. You know, and you know, and, I think yeah. also perversely, when I was growing up at university, Australians of my age were trotting all over London because they were coming to do the Grand Tour in reverse. But yeah. you know, these days it's so possible to travel and it's unfortunate that when we're young often our hex debt or other responsibilities stops us from doing so but you've got the whole of the rest of your life to be responsible you've got to get out and see the world and broaden your horizons before you take on too many more responsibilities Mm. that's super thank you very much my great pleasure it's been a great conversation i think what i've taken away is um the importance of the transport nodes you're very right in saying that once upon a time you took a train and that first platform was how you connected with the space and I guess uh, with all the different transport options I, I had forgotten the importance of that, that landing pad into a city so um, thank you for reminding me of how important that is. What have you taken away Mike? Well, I think one of the big things for me is the notion that placemaking doesn't need to be a sort of star-studded project um, element, that it's something that can be done at very grassroots level and that everyone can be contributing to but certainly the proponents of development and people in our industry can be doing really simple things with the community and perhaps advise like yourself, Kate, to get better outcomes for what's otherwise been a very sort of supply-driven sort of product that's been brought in the market. And that, Kate, gives us all permission to travel. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thanks very much for being on The Puzzle, Kate. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs>